Please pray with me. Lord, I do ask that as we go through this text today, that you would highlight for us the things around us in our lives that challenge our faith, that we would put to death in ourselves those things which are not of you, that we would seek you in truth and goodness, and that we would remain faithful unto the end. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we continue on in our first John series today, and we continue on today particularly um, with three things. Number one, the Apostle John is giving us a warning, a warning to the church in the first century and a warning to the church here in the 21st century. It's a warning about false Christs and false gospels. How do we resist that? That's point number two. There's two ways, actually. Points number two and three. We resist false gospels by knowing the truth of the faith, first. And second, by listening to the Holy Spirit's witness in our own lives, in our own hearts. So let's dig right in. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And see how the apostle addresses the church. Children, he says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Let's stop right there. How does John address the church? He addresses us as children, as children. This is an affectionate term that the apostle is using. It's a tender term. He has previously addressed us as beloved. Later on in the letter, he will address us as little children. But here he says children. And what does he say? He says it is the last hour. Now, what does St. John mean that it's the last hour? Well, for the readings, for the, those reading John's gospel and here John's letter, the year was something around the seventh year of Emperor Dormition's reign. And if you're not up on your Roman history, that's about 90 A.D., 9-0 A.D. And here we are in A.D. 2020, and we're still in the last hour. We're still awaiting Jesus' triumphant return. And antichrists still abound. St. John begins this section of his letter with a warning to all Christians about these antichrists. But I think first it's important to define what does he mean by antichrist. If we look at the Greek, it's literally antichristos right? Christ being Christos. Christ meaning the anointed one or the Messiah, right? We see that throughout the Gospels. Anti being the adversary, the anti, the one against, right? We still use that terminology today when we use the, the uh, prefix anti, it's against. So the Antichrist are all those who St. John says later 
are sons of the devil, are those who are against Christ. Satan, of course, is the ultimate antichrist, right? His name literally means, in Hebrew, adversary. Adversary. Against man. Against Christ. Some have characterized the antichrist as someone with a sullen face and black eyes and horns. Maybe you've seen some of that artwork or or some uh, Christian movies that show him that way, right? Oh, if only it were that easy, friends. If only he were that recognizable. That's done for dramatic effect, and it just simply isn't the way that the devil and his sons appear. St. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So St. John himself gives us a very, very clear definition of what the Antichrist is, as he uses it here in verse 22. Look with me at that, in addition to St. Paul's definition. And whatever... I'm sorry, that's the wrong chapter. Let's look here. Okay. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So, for St. John, the Antichrist, and any Antichrist, is one who denies Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus to be the, the Son of God. Such a person, he says, is a liar. Is a liar. What does he mean? Well, John has told us that there's more than one Antichrist, right? Now look with me back at verse 19. Look, he uses the plural here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been, born, had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. These people who he's talking about, again, who we're not sure quite who their identity is here in the first century, are those who were part of the church who have gone out and started preaching another gospel. They're those who have not just left the church, but St. John says they've left her Lord. They've left the Trinity. The church later came up with another name for such people. Does anybody know, anyone who reads church history, know that that name, those who leave the church, who were part of the fold, but then depart? I, what? Apostate, exactly. David, 10 points for you. Apostates, right? Apostates leave the church. They were part of the church. It comes from the Greek word apostia, apostis, sorry, apostasia. There we go. Um, and it means to defect or to revolt. And so those who revolt and defect are apostates. That's 
what St. John here calls antichrists. And there have been many apostates throughout the years. Those of you that have read church history know that, right? They start here in, in John's time. They stretch through the famous emperor, Julian the Apostate. Maybe you've heard his name in Roman history. He was one that was a Christian and then denied Christ for other gods. Down to our modern day, right? Sadly, even today, we see people deny Christ and leave the faith. Um, Josh Harris was one that came up in the news recently in 2019. Right? Such people not, don't just make a wreck of themselves and their own faith. They make a wreck of those around them. Christians are always having to be wary of apostates and to guard their own souls. St. Paul writes to young Bishop Timothy about the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, where he writes to the young bishop, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this commandment in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That's pretty powerful language that St. Paul uses in addition to St. John, right? But notice the verbs in that, that they might fight, that they might hold fast to the faith. These are the ones who John's talking about who have departed from the faith. But St. John tells of how they have departed, not just from the faith, but from the community of faith, the church, and from, therefore, community with Jesus, and therefore community with the Father. Do you see where John's going? He's saying that denial of Christ isn't just, isn't just actually saying, I deny Jesus Christ. It's more than that. that. That there is doctrine and dogma wrapped in that. That there is moral conduct wrapped in that, which, of course, we heard last week, and he reiterates at the end of today's chapter, that to deny Jesus Christ to, is to be a, an apostate, and that it doesn't happen as easily as just saying, I reject Jesus Christ. It starts out in other ways, with false gospels, and with false behavior. St. John here is warning these early Christians of both those things being coupled together, and they're to guard against it. Notice that St. John and St. Paul both use the term faith in the ancient sense. That's capital F, right? Not as our modern culture uses the term faith. Faith is in our modern culture is to believe in something, right? Very much, you guys remember, it wasn't, I think it was just last year, Macy's had this, this campaign of believe with the little star. Do you remember that? I always chuckle to myself when I see stuff like that, because believe in what? Well, you know, we can't even say what we believe in anymore, because we don't believe in anything as a culture anymore, right? Well, we do, I suppose, but, but we can't market anything on it. And so our culture also, also says faith. Like, faith is some magic thing that just having genuine good faith intrinsically is good. 
But what if that faith is in something evil? What if your faith, quote-unquote, is in the son of the devil? It's never that overt, right? But do you see what St. John is here saying? That faith, to adhere to the faith, is to adhere to the faith passed down to us from the apostles, in the scriptures, in the creeds. And so we come to his first defense for the Christian. The first defense against apostasy isn't rocket science. It's knowledge. Knowledge. You have to know what you believe. You have to know what you believe. Look what he says, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So again, what's St. John doing here? He's saying to abide in, and that's that word that he uses back in his gospel where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, right? Abide in me, meno, be in me, know me. To guard against false teaching, according to St. John and St. Paul, we must hold fast to what we heard from the beginning. The Christian is to continually return to the basics of the faith. Once again, we see St. John here returning to that theme of this letter, to the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross as an atonement for sin, and that that is sufficient. There's no need for more. There's no need to add on to those things of the early church. There's no need to take away from them. They are sufficient, and we must hold to them. Article 20 and 21 in the 39 Articles of Religion, which is one of our confessional statements as an Anglican church, clearly says this when it says that Scripture holds all that's necessary for salvation. And the interpretation of Scripture is through the creeds, and the historic church is seen through the councils. Those articles also say that the church has erred, but it's always corrected by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge, says St. John. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So what is he saying? That that truth has been given to them, that it's been bestowed upon them by the Holy Spirit. This first way of knowing God is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? To have knowledge, to learn about what Scripture says, of course, being the Holy Spirit's inspired word of God to us, and to interpret it through the ancient wisdom of the church, is the Holy Spirit at work. It is the Holy Spirit at work. A lot of people miss that. Some, for some reason, they divorce the Holy Spirit from that learning. I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's still hard work. <laughs> you have to read. 
you have to look at these things. When we look at the vast course of church history, we see the same story again and again. Someone thinks they have a new and relevant version of the gospel. Someone thinks that they've come up with the, the magic solution that everyone's going to embrace. And it takes off with great popularity for maybe 50, 100, maybe even a few hundred years. But in time, it crashes along with the adherents to it who make shipwrecks of their faith. There is no new revelation necessary for salvation, brothers and sisters. That is a postmodern lie. The idea that we need additional information from what Scripture has told us and what the Church has handed down to us. St. John tells us here that we know everything. Now, he's not, clearly he's not saying that, that his, his followers here know all things that are to be known, but what he is saying is that they know all things that are to be known about salvation, about the faith. He can say that in 90 A.D. There's no new revelation needed for the church. There's no new prophecy for revelation. That's something else that we hear a lot lately, that we need prophecy. No, the prophecy has been said. It's been done. It's been spoken. Jesus Christ, the word among us, is the ultimate revealing of God. He has come, and he has died and risen and ascended. The challenge to the church is to preserve what we've been given. And boy, if we could only do that, to not add to it, to not take away and subtract to it, to keep on the historic faith, as the Apostle Jude says, to those things delivered by the saints. The Reverend William Inge, priest and dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in the early 20th century, famously wrote this. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. It's short, and it's very well spoken. He says, Whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. Let me say that again. Whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. And the good dean saying this says two truths, at least. First of all, that when we marry the spirit of the age, when we marry the current values, the current ideas, we look fools to the future. We look as fools to the future. The progress of today is often laughable in a mere 50 to 100 years. Just look at the supposedly progressive ideas of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Things like eugenics. And notice, those things have dire consequences sometimes. But what's more important here is that we don't want to be widows or widowers in the eternal age. The eternal age. Right? We don't want to come to the end of our time and somehow find ourselves apart from Jesus in the age to come. Lured away. And so St. John warns us that we have to hold fast to the things we already know. 
the church does err, right? That's one of the things we say as, as sons and daughters of the Reformation. The church has erred. But even when it errs, those things are corrected. We look to the older church to fix the church, right? What happened in the Protestant Reformation? The excesses, the additions of Rome were attacked and thrown out, not with new ideas, but with ancient ideas, by appealing to the church fathers, by looking back and saying, hmm, these things like indulgences, we don't see any of that in the early church. How does the Reformation happen? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, by looking to the church. By looking to the scriptures. John Calvin famously said that we see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. And the things that belong to Christ can be taken by both subtraction and addition to the faith. But adherence to the fundamentals of the ancient faith and to our master is crucial for our life and our salvation. Look at verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Knowledge is a gift from the Holy Spirit. In our gospel today, Jesus tells us that he will send the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. That has happened in two ways. Number one, in the church, as we've just spoken of. But what about the second way? By the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Beyond knowledge is anointing. And St. John writes about this in the next part of this passage. Look at verses 27 and 28. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. Okay, we just read that. Let's look at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So the second way the Holy Spirit acts is the inner witness in us. Not a conscience, but something like that. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, so much more than a conscience, has been given to you as a baptized member of the church. The Holy Spirit enters into us and continues to direct us in those daily things. And that, too, is a gift from God. I can't help but think that maybe St. John here is talking about John chapter 3. Do you remember John chapter 3? What's going on in his gospel? Bible quiz. John chapter 3. Who comes to meet Jesus? in the middle of the night. Nicodemus, that's right. Nicodemus 
comes to Jesus and he talks to him about salvation. And Jesus says one thing to him. He says, well, he says several things to him. But in John 3, 3, he says, he answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, what John's saying here is that when we are born in the, of the Holy Spirit, when we're anointed by the Holy Spirit, we are born again or born from on high. The Greek's a little fuzzy there as to which translation's exactly right. And the Holy Spirit comes into us and leads us in all things through his anointing. That connection is not an accident here in John's letter. When Christians are baptized, they are equipped to hear the Holy Spirit, not just to learn from the church, but to discern and learn from God himself. Now we do that in community. We do that in the context of the church. But we're given that gift nonetheless. Jesus promises in John 14, 18, he will not leave us as orphans, but will send this helper to us. So in today's gospel, we hear, that Jesus, we hear Jesus tell the apostles that the Holy Spirit will lead them into all truth. And what St. John is here telling them is that they do not just rely on the Holy Spirit through their knowledge or from what they've learned from the apostles, but also they have this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. you see the Holy Spirit's been given to us to re-enliven our hearts and souls to quicken us is the old term to make us alive spiritually speaking in his work on the Holy Spirit Saint Ambrose the teacher of Saint Augustine writes this the Holy Spirit gives life not in a different way from the Father and the Son nor by a different working and what wonder it is that the Spirit works life. Who quickens as does the Father, and as does the Son? And who can deny that quickening is the work of eternal majesty? What's he saying? That in our Christian walk, we have this testimony in us, in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, working on our hearts, working on our souls, bringing us alive, making us aware of sins, convicting us at sometimes, encouraging us sometimes, restraining us sometimes, and working to change our desires so that our desires would be like the desires of God, making us into the image of Christ. Now, how do we know that that is the Holy Spirit talking to us? Well, that's another sermon altogether. But suffice it to say, we know that it's the Holy Spirit when it doesn't contradict Scripture and when it doesn't contradict the historic testimony of the church. The Holy Spirit will never contradict himself. He can't. He's the author of all truth. Look at 3.8. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you see he's echoing St. Paul speaking to Timothy that we will know by the deeds. We will know by the deeds. So like those readers of this epistle, those first readers in Turkey, you and I are, as Christians have the promises of Christ. He's sent his Holy Spirit to us, but we must listen to him. The Holy Spirit has led us into all truth in the inspired word of God that we call the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit has worked the church for centuries in creeds and traditions, and he works on you and I now. He has anointed us. You have him daily directing you if you listen to him and bringing to, things, bringing to life your mind and your heart. But this warning remains. There are many false gospels and partial gospels put forth. Resist them. Combat them. Discern them. Let us always cling to the faith that was delivered to us first by the saints. And the challenge for us going forward is to discern, to learn from the Holy Spirit in his church, to listen to the Holy Spirit daily in our lives, and to be children of God with the gift promised to us of eternal life, both here and in the age to come. Amen.